All right, we're going to get into our study this morning. This is the final week in our series that we've called Politics by Design. Uh, And uh, we're going to pick up this morning as we look at the nature of wisdom in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. And so, 1 Kings chapter 3, go ahead and turn there in your Bible. If you're in need of a Bible this morning, there should be one right in front of you, stuck in the back of the pew, and there's an index in the first few pages that will help you find the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. This chapter marks a significant transition in the government of Israel. Namely, the great and probably king against all other kings comparison, David, the king who was a man after God's own heart, that king, the one who wrote many of the Psalms, that king has now passed on his throne to his son Solomon. Um, And as uh, Solomon's rule gets going, he's worshiping the Lord, offering him sacrifices. He's on effectively a prayer retreat. And he has a vision of God speaking to him. And God says, Solomon, your father loved me. I loved your father. Your father was faithful to me as a king. You are his son. Ask, and I will give you whatever you ask for. And I want you to notice here that what Solomon asks for is wisdom. And then what we're going to look at as the chapter concludes is an illustration of this gift of wisdom in practice as Solomon rules. Okay, and that's what we need to talk about. That's what we need to focus on this morning. We've covered so much ground in this political series, but if we stopped before this week, it would still be significantly incomplete. So let's read the passage together, uh, beginning here in chapter 3, verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord. Walking in the statutes of David his father, only he made sacrifices and offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand bird offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness and uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on the throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this, And have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you did not ask. 
both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in all my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and then made a feast for all his servants. So Solomon asked for wisdom. God is pleased with what Solomon asks for, and he goes home, and his reign kind of officially begins. What follows is an illustration or a demonstration of this gift God has given, wisdom, in practice. Okay? It's the proving ground. It's the first test case of Solomon's reign, and I want to read that as well before we start. And so look here in verse 16. Then... Two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, O my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. And I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had borne. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king and the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And listen to this. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. If we wanted to look for a summarial statement, of what's required of those in positions of power, you probably couldn't beat out that closing phrase, the wisdom of God was in them to do justice. Okay. Let's pray and then we'll take a deeper look. God, it is vital this morning as we take one last chance to weigh out what it looks like to faithfully, as Christians, engage in the world around us, that we explore and come to understand wisdom. And since wisdom is your gift, and since when Solomon asked for it, you were pleased, we can come in confidence this morning and ask that you would help us to understand what wisdom is, and that you would help us as we seek wisdom to find it. And that uh, we can do this in confidence knowing this morning, Lord, that our pursuit of what's important to you honors you and pleases you. 
So we pray for your help this morning, Lord. Send your spirit, the same spirit that gives wisdom, send it this morning to help us to understand the text and apply it in our lives to the glory of God and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So the, the case that comes before the king is a difficult one. These two women, prostitutes, are both pregnant about the same time, both give birth about the same time. One of the children dies in the night, and one of the women comes forward and says, the woman who lives with me has swapped her dead son for my living son. Now, one of the things that's important to notice about this story is we don't know which one of the women is telling the truth. One woman gives her report and the other denies that report, but we don't actually know what's true, what's going on. Solomon's response illuminates, brings forward the one missing piece of the puzzle and the mother is discovered. Okay? But notice that our author here labels this as being an example of justice. And as we looked at a few weeks ago, and we talked about the broadness of what justice entails, here we see it in its most narrow sense, right judgment. Standing with the victim versus the oppressor. Standing with the righteous versus the wicked. Standing with uh, the one who has been offended and moving away the darkness and bringing light to a situation. All those things are involved in justice. And the thing that runs through this, the thing that's woven through this, the whole purpose of the story, obviously, is to demonstrate Solomon's wisdom. But this is not a message this morning about Solomon. It's a message about wisdom. We need to look at the nature of wisdom because our author here this morning sees it as being a primary, maybe even the sole tool in a leader's toolkit. An essential facet, an essential aspect, not just of government, but of doing of justice. And so I just want to walk through this and point out a few things here this morning. First and primary is the need for wisdom. You see, one of the challenges is that we as Christians believe that God has given us in the Bible his very word. That God has revealed himself and that revelation helps us to know him, to know his will, that it speaks with the authority of God. But we often make a mistake in assuming that means doing the right thing, or bringing about God's will, or doing justice is therefore obvious or clear. Okay. One of the things that I see regularly in Christian debates on the internet is these two statements. One, the Bible is clear. Okay. And the other is the language, obviously. Okay. Now, I don't like obviously in, in uh, debate language anyways, because it's almost always bully language. If it was so obvious, you wouldn't have to point it out, right? Obviously implies a disagreement and shames the other person for not being able to see what's right in front of their faces, okay? So I don't generally trust the word obviously to begin with. Okay. But what about the Bible is clear? Now, I actually believe that that statement in and of itself, outside of context, is absolutely true. It is one of the features of God's word that it is comprehensible. 
in a very incomprehensible word that the early church fathers loved to use, it has perspicuity, okay, which just means it's translucent. You can see through it. It's clear. But there's a difference between recognizing that the Bible is clear in what it says and discerning how to apply what the Bible says to what's actually going on in our life. There's a distance that needs to be gauged. In fact, here we have a very good illustration of the need for wisdom. Wisdom is needed not because God's ways aren't simple, but because human life gets very quickly tremendously complex. Remember, as we saw in this series, the world that we live in is no longer the world that God designed and intended. God made the world and it was good. It was perfect. It was without death, it was without sin, it was without deception. It was without all of these things that are kind of woven into the warp and woof of life today. Okay? And so we can draw very clear principles from the Bible. You shall not murder doesn't leave itself to a need for extensive interpretation. But applying it in life as it is, is actually almost always very challenging. Just look at the situation that comes before Solomon here. Look at the things that Solomon doesn't have, even though he does have responsibility to judge. First, Solomon is not omniscient. He doesn't know what happened in that house. He doesn't have all the facts. Which, again, is another Achilles heel to how we usually act as human beings. We think all of the facts are findable and discernible, and coming to them and responding to them will lead to justice. But just think of all of the high-level court cases in the news. Think of all the difficulties of weighing the evidence, of weighing the testimony. In fact, clearly here not only is the omniscience or the lack thereof a problem, but so is the reality of deception. Justice is really easy when there are no lies. But that's not the world we live in. Right? There is a difference between people's presentation and their intentions. There can be an incongruence between the manifestation of what people say and what's actually going on in their hearts. And we are constantly trying to close this gap, aren't we, right? That's why we have things like lie detectors. But even that, we're starting to lose confidence in their full reliability. Even a lie detector, which, side note, shouldn't surprise us because the man who created Wonder Woman created the lie detector. Did you know that? Okay, that's where it comes from. So it shouldn't surprise us, uh, but the heart still proves itself to be dark and deceitful. In fact, it's worse than that. Because your heart isn't just hidden to other people, it's hidden to yourself. We don't always know our true intentions. We come to the facts and we bring with it a bias that skews in our direction. Maybe one of these women feels justified in her deception. Maybe she can look at the other woman and say, yes, but this other woman doesn't deserve. And so she feels justified in playing the righteous card because she may not be truly righteous, but she's more righteous than the other person. Okay, these limitations, these gaps, and these difficulties are heaped upon the reality, again, that we live in a world where 
circumstances also are not as they should be. This story doesn't start with a crime. It begins with a tragedy. A child dies in the night. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege to read G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown stories. They're mystery stories. But one of the reasons why G.K. Chesterton, a Catholic and a very vocal one, felt the need to write mystery stories is because he felt that all the other people who were doing it had this idea of a criminal genius who, who was just wicked to the core and never had a good reason for doing anything. And he wanted to say, no, actually, most crime in human life stems from real, natural human problems. It's just as likely to come from love as it comes from hate, for example. With these two women, it begins with a tragedy, and that complicates things. It creates temptation where there was no temptation. It creates a, uh, a complexity where it becomes hard to discern how to proportion out the liability and responsibility. All these things become part of it. I think nothing illustrates wisdom better than this. Imagine that you have the role of a Christian counselor. You're working for a church, and your only goal in what you do is to help people rightly and properly follow God. And the man comes into your church. His name is Jacob. He's new to the neighborhood. And he says, look, I grew up in a Christian household. My dad, Isaac, knew the Lord. My mother, Rebecca, knew the Lord. And then I kind of screwed everything up, and I ran from home. I made a mess of my life, but now I've come back home. I want to get right with the Lord. I was worshiping idols, but we buried them on the way here. They're no longer here. Now I want to follow God. And you go, great, wonderful. And he says, I'd like to introduce you to my family now. Here is my two wives, their two concubines, and the 12 kids I have through them collectively. Now what? Now what is where wisdom comes in. Okay. You know, another complexity that I didn't mention that's also significant, one that's not so much in this text, at least not visibly, is that life has gotten more complicated than it used to be, okay? If you want to know responsible handling of your automobile, you may find principles in the scripture that dictate and look like that, but you won't find any automobiles, right? Some places in the Bible we have to use wisdom to apply because we no longer need things that they needed then because they wouldn't matter, for example, the Old Testament law says that you need to build a parapet around your roof. Okay, shame on all of you. None of you have a parapet. What is a parapet? It's a short wall so that people can stay on your roof, hang out on your roof, eat on your roof, sleep on your roof safely. Okay, because ancient Near East homes were designed to escape the heat that builds up in your house in the evening by hanging out on top of it. But does that mean there is no valuable application for that law in the Old Testament? No, because clearly it is implying that you have a responsibility for those in your household and their safety while they're present. In fact, that idea has made it into most Western and modern households. You're responsible to keep safe those who are on your property. And so if you have a faulty staircase and somebody is injured on your property, you're responsible for that injury. But even that case, anyone who's ever experienced injury law or watched you know, Judge Wapner or Judge Judy or these types of things knows there's a whole lot of other things people can bring to the table that may justify you being in the right here, like drunkenness or you know, 
uh, rough housing or these types of things, okay? Or breaking into your house. I don't know if that's controversial, but maybe it shouldn't be. But the point is, all of these places demand more than simply the Bible is clear. More than simply just the obvious text of Scripture. If we neglect this, not only will we not do justice, because we'll live in this ideal hypothetical world that isn't real, and so, you know, for example, do you notice what Solomon doesn't do here? He doesn't look at these two women and he goes, but you're prostitutes, you're lawbreakers. I have no reason to help you at all, right? He can't distance himself from this problem because it's not ideal. The need for justice still stands. And so there's a need for wisdom, but the other problem is not only will we fall short of justice, but we'll also become very poor handlers of the Bible. <clears throat> Here's one of the ways I often see this. If you believe that the Bible addresses everything clearly and that any time it mentions something, it operates as a guide on that, autumn, uh, on that item, then you go, look, the Bible is clear. Co-sleeping is not something you should do. Right? For the uninitiated, co-sleeping is when a mo mother sleeps in the same bed with her baby. Now, obviously, that's a part of this story, right? In the night, one of these women rolls onto her baby, it suffocates and dies. And that's a horrible thing. But you cannot say the Bible is clear, co-sleeping is a sin. You see the difference there? Now, I've never heard that particular argument, but I have heard plenty along those same lines. Okay? What I'm suggesting to you is an understanding of the need for wisdom will not just help us live a better and more just and God-honoring life. It'll also help us to handle the scriptures in a way that's more faithful. Okay. So, every time we look at an issue in life that we're trying to solve, before we can build the bridge, we need to measure the gap. Okay. Some places, uh, think, of, think of a journey. Some places, uh, or even better, Think of a connect the dots. Some places it's just a straight line. No detours, no turning. Okay. Sometimes you can utilize Occam's razor. Right? Occam's razor is this principle that the simplest solutions are preferred to the most complex. And we look at the solution or the, uh, the situation and the line is short and it's straight. Okay. The Bible is full of principles that are really clear and very broadly applicable in very obvious cases. That's true. But the more we have to turn along the way and take a left here and a right here and then go under this bridge and through this tunnel, the more we need to recognize we're in the realm of wisdom. Okay. And it's important that we understand this because this is one of the places where self-righteousness thrives is in people who maintain a rigid boundary for other people and condemn them for not keeping it, and you point out that the Bible doesn't command those things, and they go, but isn't it wise? And you go, well, it may be. But you're spanning a gap here. Okay. And so there is a dire need for us and for those in power for the right uh, application of justice for wisdom. And the second thing we need to ask is, where does this wisdom come from? How do we get it? Okay. Now, in this case, it begins very clearly earlier than this case. Right? This is a test case. It's here to demonstrate what was already existing. 
right? In the context, we just read a story about where this wisdom came from. But it's a pre-existing condition. So we need to go back to the beginning of the chapter. And before we get to what might be the obvious point to make, I want to make a just as important but less obvious place. Solomon wants wisdom. In other words, wisdom always begins with humility. It always begins with recognizing that it's something you do not have and you do need. Now, as we will see a little bit later, God is the giver of wisdom, and some wisdom he just gives innately. This is another part of how we should think about these things, because the world is not as it should be. Not all of us is, are as wise as other people, and that is not a moral statement. Okay? Some of us just don't have the, the, the street smarts or the common sense or the experience. Sometimes you make foolish decisions, right? And some of us make more foolish decisions than others. That is not necessarily a moral problem, okay? And it's not necessarily one we should hold people accountable from and go, well, if you would just stop being so dumb, right? God gives wisdom, but if you need wisdom, it begins with the humility to know that you need it and to ask for it. Okay. This is what James tells us. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. The formula is so simple. Does God desire justice to be done on earth? Does God desire for you to live a life that honors him? Does God desire for your life to manifest wisdom? The answer to all of those is a simple and easy yes. And James says, God's in the business of giving wisdom, of granting it. Now, the way that comes about, we'll talk about in just a second, but it has to begin with humility. There is no greater foolishness, the Bible says, than the pride that says, I don't need help. And especially, I don't need divine help. Proverbs says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And that's not just a jab at modern atheism, because in the ancient world, there was no ancient atheism. What it's actually talking about is those who live in their life as if God is unnecessary and therefore unreal. Okay. And if you read Proverbs, you'll see a bunch of people who walk shoulders high, full of confidence, right into death, destruction, turmoil, these types of things. Okay. And so it begins with humility. It begins with asking. And notice Solomon is upheld as an example here because he's given a blank check. What do you want, Solomon? Now, it's not that wisdom was the right answer, but it was a good answer. It's one that pleased God. And we can think of a lot of lesser good answers we can think of things that he could have asked for, but this one he basically says, I want to honor you with what you've given me. You've put me in this place. And in the same way in your life, the place where wisdom begins is where you actually need it. Okay? In your role, in your circumstances, in your relationships, with your strengths and weaknesses, with your office place, all of those things. But the second thing, and obviously this is the more important point, is here Solomon's wisdom is the gift of God. Okay. 
God is the giver of wisdom. Now, I want to draw out a couple of points here. First, we need to understand what we call God's common grace, which means that God doesn't just give good gifts to good people. He doesn't just empower Christians. He doesn't just give intelligence to those who will honor him with those intelligence. God is a giver by nature. God is a lover, and he is gracious, and so he just gives. What that means for us as Christians is we should be open to the fact that God's wisdom might exist outside these walls. That there may be actual people who have been given the gift of wisdom in a particular situation or in a broad expression of their whole life, and we should call it what it is, a good gift of God. I'll come back to that in just a second. But when we talk here about God being the giver of wisdom, we need to recognize that there are other wisdoms that come from other places. In fact, there's, uh, here it's referred to as the wisdom of God. Okay. So what about the wisdom that's not of God? What about other wisdoms? The Bible mentions a few. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he talks about the wisdom of man in contrast to the wisdom of God. There are ways, Proverbs says, that seems right to a man. The wisdom of man is wisdom in all of its limitation. And this, again, doesn't mean that it's always evil, but it does mean that it's incomplete. It's to the best of our ability wisdom. It's weighing and assessing all of life as we find it. But oftentimes, that wisdom of man limits who God is and what he's doing because it doesn't fit in our pre confined box. What Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians is the wisdom of man that says, look, we are the philosophers. We have spent generations thinking about how life works and have drawn some very clear conclusions. And he says, yeah, but let's just try a test case. case. What do you think of the crucifixion of Jesus? And the wisdom of this world says that's ugly. And how can that possibly be tied to your worship? That's foolishness to the Greeks. What about the wisdom of the Jews? It's weakness to the Jews. That's the wisdom of man. It's limited because it doesn't know the unlimited God. But there's another wisdom that we need to talk about. James doesn't use the language wisdom of God. He uses the language of wisdom from above. Can you imagine what he contrasts with the wisdom from above? The wisdom from below. Now that's a little bit different than human wisdom, isn't it? It's it's wisdom from below, as in the below, right? And this is essential that we understand that there's different types of wisdom. In fact, let's turn to James and listen to the contrast he makes between these two types of wisdom. Here in chapter 3. James asks in verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Again, see the humility there? It's not self-assertive, it's meek. Okay. But, verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. 
for where there is jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now this is important because I told you there is wisdom in the world and some of it is God's gift, but there are other types of wisdom. I will remind you that the Bible opens with a very wise character known as the serpent, who is more cunning, is probably what your translations say, but it's just the word for wise, than all the other animals in the field. There is another wisdom. There is a wisdom from below. There is a demonic wisdom and notice what it is. It's a wisdom that recognizes opportunities to take advantage of others and takes it. Sees weaknesses and exploits it for their own. Knows how to work the angles to focus on getting all the goods. There is a wisdom out there that is self-serving and effective. And the Bible says that at its heart, it is not God's wisdom, but closer to the devil's. Now this is important. Because sometimes we think because this person is successful in life, they will be good in politics. How we define that success matters. Just because somebody has, uh, you know, built an empire for themselves doesn't mean that they can lead a just one. We have to weigh what type of wisdom is here. In fact, this tells us not just where we get wisdom, God's wisdom, but it tells us where we find it or when we found it, right? We could use this as a litmus test to go, is this wisdom or not? And if it's selfish and it perpetuates jealousy and it leads to disorder and the perpetuation of evil, it is not wise. However, here the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy. Do you see how all of these modifiers significantly narrow the field on wise choices, on politic plans that lay out a foundation? It's not just that wisdom weighs out all the angles and presents the best solution. That best solution is defined biblically. And it's not merely practical, pragmatic, it's theological. In fact, do you notice how all of these descriptions basically say the wisdom from above is pure because what? Because God is pure. Gentle because God is gentle. Open to reason because God is rational. Full of mercy because God is merciful. Leads to good fruit because God seeks life. Impartial because God is impartial. The wisdom of God reflects God. In other words, it's tied again to this idea of the image of God that is found in humanity and our call in that image to rightly represent God in the way that we live out life as human beings. What this means is when we are looking for solutions in complex life situations, The wisdom we're looking for is not so much the right answer, although it will involve right and wrong, right? As it says here, it will lead to righteousness, but it is in a very significant way the best answer. 
Wisdom is more like putting together a puzzle than solving a math equation. We're looking for the piece with all of the contours that fit. A good part of wisdom is knowing when one principle applies versus another. Have you ever read the book of Proverbs? If you try and treat the Proverbs like a law code, you will end up failing because a lot of the Proverbs contradict one another. In fact, in a single passage, back to back, the Proverbs say, answer a fool according to his folly, and then the very next proverb says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. How do you keep them both? By knowing when is the right time to apply which. Think of the book of Ecclesiastes, or if you're not as familiar with it, think of the old mamas and the papas song, right? There is a season for everything, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to build and a time to tear down. What is that recognizing? You have to be able to discern the times. Wisdom implies all of these things. It's not just knowing the right thing to do, but how to get all the way to the right place. And that means priorities. It means step by step. It means knowing which battle is first and primary. It means coming up with a plan that leads to the place. But ultimately, again, it is all these things. In fact, let's just touch on a couple of them. One is here it's labeled open to reason. God's wisdom takes in inventory of the circumstances. It's interested in the facts. The wisdom of Solomon is not that these women come in and before they open, his mi- mouth, uh, open their mouths, he knows from God which one is right or wrong, right? He doesn't have revelation here. He has wisdom. Wisdom implies hearing the facts, understanding the circumstances, weighing the nuances, paying attention to the scientists, taking in information. In fact, one of the things we see about Solomon's tremendously wise ruling is that he was obsessed with animal study, with botany. He was a researcher. He was uh, a Renaissance man, well before the Renaissance. All of those things are incorporated into wisdom. Wisdom means that you hear out the other sides, take on their best principles, communicate where the Achilles heel is in their arguments. Wisdom is open to reason. Okay, another one that I want to draw your attention to uh, here is that it's full of mercy. Oftentimes, we as Christians, like I said, if we were in Solomon's seat, we wouldn't even allow these two prostitutes to open their mouth because they don't deserve our attention. Sometimes I hear Christians talk about the deserving poor, and this is the implication. But that's not where Solomon is. He recognizes that even in odd places, maybe even unjust places, there might be injustices that need to be set right. He recognizes here that that the life of these two women and the life of these children are something that he has a responsibility for. And so he looks for a wisdom uh, that, uh, that is full of mercy, that doesn't just go, well, you made your bed, now lie in it, but instead ask the question, how can we get you back on the right track? It doesn't come to Jacob and go, wow, your life is a mess. I guess you're over. I guess there's no place for you to go. Obedience looked like you not doing these things, and now you've been disobedient, right? The question is not, 
judging right or wrong. The question is coming alongside and moving towards right. And that leaves room to meet people not where we wish they were, not where they should have been, but where they're at. Now, this is a place that I think is particularly hard in American politics because generally we build very narrow issues. And the only time we build very broad legislation is when it's pork barrel, when we latch on a bunch of irrelevant, inappropriate things to a bill. But instead, as Christians, we should be for comprehensive bills that present comprehensive solutions that touch all the places. Now, I heard something on the radio that I think illustrates this. One of the hardest things about this series is I've been trying to be practical without being political in a way that I don't have time for, okay? So give me a little bit of room and just let me share with you this morning. Uh, many of you may have heard that Jeff Bezos just uh, committed $10 billion of his own money, not Amazon's, to climate change issues. Um, uh, NPR was interviewing a UW professor who's focused on climate change issues specifically in the political realm for the last few decades and the question they asked her was if the money was yours what would you do with it and I thought her in, uh, her answer was fascinating because she said it should be used to help those in the heartland of America transition from climate adverse careers to climate promoting ones now that is not an answer I hear very often, and she was thrown from the audience and from the interviewer a whole bunch of other options, but wouldn't it be more important to focus on R&D, but wouldn't it be more important to send the money to the front lines of politics and win the things, and she said, no, because the goal is for us all to move forward, and she said, and this is her opinion, but she said, I believe that most of these heartland Americans are not adverse because they don't believe the science, it's because they will have to foot the bill, and it will push them into poverty. It will ruin their lives. When it says here that it is full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and basically it satisfies a broad question of justice. You want to know where we can find foolish, the foolishness the most in human history? It's in two places. It's in systems that went out because they serve one party well and do it at the cost of another party. Right? And it's the ones where we don't see the unintended consequences. And that's another thing wisdom does. What is so amazing about Solomon's choice here? He thinks of a way to lead to the consequences of the mother being identified. Right? He doesn't just judge the situation. He sets up a scenario that leads to the consequence of the mother coming forward because he knows that the mother would rather lose her child than the child lose its life. And that's more wise than it sounds, because you can say, but aren't they both mothers? But the other one was willing to take a child from someone else than to go childless. Those are incongruent. His wisdom looks beyond the circumstances and sees the consequence. It looks down the pipeline and imagines what comes next? And this, again, is another place where we have been tremendously foolish as human beings. We are early adopters. We go, oh, that's shiny, that's new, that's convenient, and we jump in with both feet, and then we try and make the legislation catch up with our foolish decisions. Now we try and set the fences. We go, hey, here's a drug. Let's test it on all of humanity and see if it works, right? We go, here's a product. Let's continue selling it until it proves to be damaging, instead of the other way around. 
but wisdom sees down the pipeline. It sees where things are headed. Okay. I hope it's become clear to you this morning how essential wisdom is. And the truth is, just look at your own life. Look at the, own, your, the messes that you've walked into in the relationships around you, the places you found yourself, the places where you've had frontline encounters with just the community that we live in here in Seattle. We would go a long way as Christians if we just owned up to the complexity of these things and looked again for nuanced and comprehensive and best solutions. To put a point on it, wisdom. There's some practical applications that I want to close with this morning. The first is, if we believe that wisdom is necessary and that God is a giver of wisdom, it should inform how we pray for those in positions of influence and power. Now, if you're not familiar, the New Testament calls us in almost uh, four different places to pray for those in government, those who are in positions of power. It is a commandment for us as Christians to pray. How are we to pray? One of the ways we should pray is that God would give wisdom. And you go, yeah, but they don't deserve wisdom. It's not really about what they deserve. It's about the consequences that come out of it for us and for our neighbors. In fact, Paul puts it this way in his letter to Timothy. He says, we should pray for our government so that we can live peaceable lives. Okay. God is often gracious with those who are undeserving for the sake of others. We saw that with Solomon. Why does God give him wisdom? Because David was faithful. As a gift to David, he blesses his son. And as we see in Solomon's life, he doesn't always use it for God's glory. He doesn't always do the right thing. But God cares about those who are, you know, who bear the consequences of those in power. The second thing is here, we should leave room for wisdom. We live in a world that has become too black and white. That blows my mind, right? For a generation of Christianity, we have been thinking that the problem with the world is that it's forgotten black and white, and now we live in a place that's so divided, everything is either or. And we as Christians need to go, no, not really. There's things on both sides that are right and wrong. There's places here where we need to talk about all these other things. Politics has been reduced down to, you know, 144 characters and waving a banner to show your allegiance. And we wonder why we can't get anything done. We're not trying to. Okay. And so we need to leave room for wisdom. And one of the places that leads us is within the church. It means we should be willing to talk and even debate these things without getting too swift to the judgment category that says right and wrong. We need to leave room to hear out one another and to, to see from all sides. One of the things that's so great about wisdom is once it's in the room, it's kind of undeniable. When wisdom walks in, every head turns and goes, look, that's wisdom. Right? Isn't that what happens with Solomon? It's hard, if you're familiar with this story, to ask what would you have done in, in these circumstances. Right? It sounds like the trolley problem. An unsolvable problem that seems no clear solution until Solomon walks through it and comes out the other side and you go, that was the right answer. Okay. That's how wisdom is. When wisdom enters into a room, everybody goes, that's it. 
That's what we've been looking for. Eureka. Right? But that takes dialogue. It takes hearing the facts. It takes determining what you actually can of what actually happened. Okay? It takes all of these things, but it needs to leave for room for us to talk about things. Many of you just received your ballots in the mail. Get together. Walk through them together. Explain why you're voting the way you're voting. That should be okay. It should be promoted. In fact, if we can figure it out in the church, maybe it's something we can convey to those outside the church. But ultimately, those who believe in wisdom will be open to reason. Right? And there's another thing here. There are places where we're going to find what Francis Schaeffer called co-belligerence. People who come alongside, and we may not agree on everything, we may even be strange bedfellows, but we can work together to get the job done, right? Where we can partner for the sake of justice and loving our neighbor with those who disagree with us. But we also have an insight that many others don't have which is that wisdom is readily available and we know the supplier. What I would suggest to you, and I think you can even demonstrate this from human history, is a lot of the great solutions in history have been provided by these humble Christians who sought the wisdom of God, who often took biblical principles and knew the distance between where they were and built a bridge that got there that everybody could walk on, and the whole world pointed it and said, ah, that is wisdom. Now, I know the church can often be accused of being uh, behind the times at best and sometimes regressive, outright regressive at worst. But I think one of the reasons that this is the case is because of the escapism that we found in the church that has severed themselves from the live outside and is just trying to ride out life in the confines of the church. But the missionaries, the great ones, the ones that we talk about all the time who led so many people to Jesus didn't just do that. William Carey, what we call, he, we call him the grandfather of modern missions because those in his church in England heard that he cared about those in India and he said if God cared about the pagans, he'd save them. Right? That seems impossible for us to even swallow as Christians today. It all begins with William Carey. But do you know what else he did for India? For one, he overturned the practice of seti, where widows were burned on the funeral pyres of their husbands. He turned many of India's ancient languages into written language and, and preserved almost their entire ancient cultural heritage. He established preservation and botany societies and studied all of the wealth of resources to India and made them readily available. He set up colleges I read a book from a, uh, an Indian author earlier who basically said there is no modern India without William Carey. Again, I implore you to feel like you can serve God in the messy world of local politics. That you can actually honor God as a senator or a congressman or a congresswoman that you can enter into the world and own up to the messiness and just 
move it towards, get it pushed in the right direction of justice and righteousness. What a vision. What a possibility. But let's be honest. The only way we're going to get there is with this dependency on God for wisdom. The only way we're going to get there is on our knees with open ears that hear the word of the Lord and open eyes that see where things are actually and open hearts that seek to do the right thing for everybody. Let's pray. I think there's many in this room, Lord, myself included, that would prefer a simpler way. We wish that right was right and wrong is wrong and the way forward is simple and the truth is obvious. But we thank you, Lord, for the gift of wisdom that you haven't left us as Christians, as orphans. You've given us your Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom. And we thank you, Lord, that you desire to do good wherever Christians are found, that you desire for life to flourish in all of the communities that we touch, that you just graciously want what's best for us and for our neighbors, for our nation and the nations of the world. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be sources of wisdom, not ultimate sources, but conduits. And we pray, Lord, for those in positions of authority. We ask, God, that you would have mercy on our nation and that you would give us wisdom. We pray for those who wouldn't be bound up in their own ambition or in protecting the party line, but would seek true solutions and continue to promote comprehensive plans that lead to epiphany moments, that bring people together to make life. We pray for wisdom for our nation, and we just own up to the complexity of the problems that are. Homelessness in our city is a complex problem with many facets and many parts it's not an easy one to solve. Having an economy that works rightly, balancing the position between rights and responsibilities, between holding people accountable and giving them freedom, promoting equality without having hidden injustices in that equality, Lord, all of these things are complex. And we thank you that you've given us your word we pray that you'd make us better students of it, but we also ask, Lord, for wisdom in the application. I pray, Lord, that we would be salt and light, and salt goes where the corruption is, and light goes where the darkness is, but it leaves neither of them the way they found them. I pray that we would be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we didn't have much of a chance this morning to connect all these things with the centerpiece of Christianity, with the gospel, with Jesus. And the main reason is because all these things flow out of the things we've already talked about where we've focused on that. But as we respond this morning, I want to remind